Halloween Christmas carols too. I I, I love those. The, it's absolutely uh, amazing. Uh, we're in the book of Jeremiah, chapter five tonight. We've been working our way through the major prophets, these big books in the Bible, uh, the second largest book that we saw in the book of Isaiah, and then. Now, in the book of, of Jeremiah and Isaiah, we saw the majesty of who God is. Holy, holy, holy. All those Christmas stories of Emmanuel, God with us, the one who is high and lifted up, now coming as a lowly babe, which we just sang about uh, tonight. And then we come to the, the book of Jeremiah. And you, if you've ever read through the book of Jeremiah, he was called the weeping prophet on purpose because the whole book is about what the Lord is dealing with with the nation of Judah. You see, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been scattered. 722 BC, the Assyrians come in and literally take the northern ten tribes and scatter them to the far parts of the earth. Uh, the ages where Assyria has owned their land and they, they assimilate these people and they interbreed them uh, throughout the empire. And later on, when they come back, they come back as, as mixed race Samaritans. And we're going to see them in here, the, the tribe of Ephraim, the, the major tribe, the capital of Samaria in the northern kingdom of Israel. But then what's left now is the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin and a minority of all the other tribes kind of scattered throughout there. Uh, but the two major tribes that are left are Judah, the kingly tribe, and the youngest tribe, Benjamin. And we're going to get to see just a little bit into uh, what that's going to be like as we walk through this. And, and if you've read ahead, you kind of understand that, that the Lord is really um, chastening and disciplining the people of Israel during this time on purpose, because they have purposely chosen to backslide. They've purposely chosen to sin against God. And just like what we learned about last week, we see that this word backsliding is going to be used more times, not only in chapter 3, but in the book of Jeremiah as a whole, more than any other book in the entire Bible. Uh, because the understanding is that the people of Israel have left their first love. You know, they've, they've backslidden. Uh, they have hearts that are hard and necks that are stiff, and they no longer want to follow after God, but because of the consequences that are happening, they're paying this lip service, this, this traditional worship, this religiosity, and God is going to be severe with them and saying, I'm not going to listen to you. So in Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we read this. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, speaking to Jeremiah, by the way. See now and know and seek in her open places if you can find a man. If there is anyone who executes judgment, who speaks the truth, and I will pardon her. Imagine that. All you have to do is find one person, Jeremiah. That's all you have to do. Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, 
but they refuse to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Therefore I said, surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. And I will go to the great men and speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke, and they've burst uh, the bonds. Therefore a lion from the forest will slay them, a wolf of the desert shall destroy them, a leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their backslidings have increased. And so, Father, tonight as we approach you, uh, this amazing book, uh, this book that at at times uh, is so high and lofty and at other times it, it literally shows us who we are and the midst of our depravity and sin. And so, Lord, tonight as we read these hard sections where where the people of Judah have to examine themselves, help us to examine our own lives. Because it's easy to come to church. It's easy to come and perform the religious service, the the traditions, the carols, or or the the Christmas, or the Easter, or, or the various sacraments that we have. And yet our heart may be so far away, so far away from you. And so, Lord, forgive us and help us to examine our, ourselves tonight. Help us to really look at uh, who we are and, and how we can be mirrored in these very verses and, and how you want us. And thank God for your son, Jesus Christ. We we so much uh, need him, but just how these verses just point us to uh, the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, tonight I ask that you open up these words, open up our hearts, our minds uh, to your word and help us to understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Uh, the, the, the first section here in, in Jeremiah, and you have to remember uh, the book of Jeremiah was literally written uh, last out of all the major prophets. Even though it's second in terms of the placing of it, the order is in terms of you know amount of chapters or amount of text. So Jeremiah is the only one out of all the prophets in general, the major and the minor, to have written two books. He writes Jeremiah. And he writes the little small book that follows it, the seven-chapter book that follows it, or the five-chapter book, excuse me, that follows it, Lamentations, right? And so this whole series of chapters in these two books that intertwine the crying of Jeremiah for the people of God. Not, Not for himself, but for the people that he loves, the people that he has to live uh, with. And you remember at the beginning when we were talking about Jeremiah, there had been three different times when Babylon had come. The first time they come and they seek a tribute. Uh, Literally, the the gold is stripped from the doors of the temple. The temple's not destroyed, uh, but anything of value that's on the outside of the walls is stripped as tribute to the people of Babylon. And then they take 
the best and the brightest. Uh, they take those guys like Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Misael, the ones we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they take those, the ones that are bright and handsome, the Bible says, are able to learn other languages, and they take them and they put them into the universities of Babylon. And this is where Daniel is at this time, by the way. He's literally living in the courts of Babylon, while Jeremiah is living amongst the dregs and, and literally starving to death with the people in Jerusalem. And then there was the second time that Babylon comes. They take away any of the blue-collar workers. Anyone with a skill, uh, that's where Ezekiel comes in. And these are the people that are living literally on the river Kibar uh, in Babylon. These are the ones that are, are the, you know, the, the people that would be doing certain jobs within the Babylonian empire. They, they weren't in the royal society like the other four, uh, but they were living in the common places, in, in the more rural areas serving in certain functions in a blue-collar way in the Babylonian Empire. And then you have everyone else, Jeremiah included. This is the riffraff. This is all the people that are left. These are the poor, the rejects. And, and if you eliminate the handsome people, what does that mean that's left in the city? The ugly people, right? You know, that kind of gives you a little hint of who Jeremiah was. Uh, but, sorry, but you understand what is happening here. All the best has been stripped away from Jerusalem. All the best has been stripped away from the nation of Judah. And all that's left are the people that are just barely scraping by. And so as we go through these verses, just kind of keep that in mind especially in verse 1 here, where it says, run to and fro through the cities or the streets of Jerusalem, see now and know, and seek in her open places if you can find a man. If there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. Remember Abraham, right? God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did Abraham say? You guys all know, right? Well, what if there's 50 people, just 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah? Of course, he had his nephew there, Lot, Lot's wife and their two daughters that were in the city. And what happened? Did they find 50 people? No, and then he dropped it to 45, and then he dropped it to 40, then he dropped it to 30, right? 20 people, if you find 20 people, will you still destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And God in his mercy said, yes, I will save that city. But did he find 20 people? No. And what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? And we saw earlier last week that the nation of Judah was worse than Sodom and Gomorrah in their sin. They had committed worse sins than Sodom and Gomorrah. And so God is bringing judgment. And as he says here, I'm going to give you a chance, not for 50 people, not for 40, 30, 20, or even 10. All you have to do, Jeremiah, is find one. All you got to do is find one righteous person in the city. One, as it says here, who seeks the truth who executes judgment, 
who looks like me. Jeremiah, he goes throughout the city, all, all those, the streets, every single street there in Jerusalem. He's looking through the alleys and the streets and the houses. And what does it say there in verse 2? Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. What did they look like on the outside? Oh, they had the right words. They had the religious traditions. They knew what to say. They, they, they knew when to sit down and stand up. They knew when to say, you know, as we would say it, amen, right? They, they knew the religious procedures, but what did their hearts look like? And this is what God always wants, the heart of the person. Then Jeremiah in verse 3 there, it says, O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Acknowledging that these people have hard hearts that are not willing to turn around. Their necks are stiff. They're not willing to turn back. And as it says here, their faces are hard. Have you ever seen a person with a hard face? Oh, yes. Thank you. Yeah. What is that hard? Maybe your grandma said this to you. If you, uh, you, know, if you were frozen with that frown on your face, what is it going to look like, right? What would it look like? Mm, you know, that, that hard face that's frozen in stone rather than the pliable joy or the pliable honesty of a heart that loves God. But then he continues on there in verse 4, after looking at the poor, therefore I said, surely these are the poor, they are the foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. This is just the common people. I'm going to look at the, you know, upper class, the, the people that are in the political circles. Now, uh, you know, this is being actually... Uh, saying it nicely, uh, but these two are the leftover dregs of society that just happen to be in the political realm. Uh, th these are the people that, you know, um, Babylon didn't want to take with them because they were so corrupt in their dealings. Uh, they, they were so horrible in the way that they treated the people. Verse 5 here, it describes it in this way. I will go to the great men and speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their gods, or the judgment of their God. And what does it say? Did he find any? But these have altogether broken the yoke. They burst the bonds. What does that mean? They repress the poor. They've hurt those around them. They've destroyed their relationships for some sort of political gain. Uh, for some sort of political gain in their own lives. And we, we see it in our society all the time, unfortunately, right? It goes on all around us. We see it on the TV uh, every single day. The description here of the lion and the leopard 
as we see, is literally what's going to be happening in the land after Babylon raises the city of Jerusalem to the ground. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall slay them, a wolf of the desert shall destroy them, a leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many, their backslidings have increased. There's that word again. That is unique in the book of Jeremiah, this word backsliding, where the people of God, instead of moving forward, wanting to have a relationship with God, what have they done instead? They've become lax. They've become complacent. And they've slipped away from their relationship uh, with God. And by the way, that word transgressions there, and, and we all know what the word transgression means. It's just that, you know, we don't always can enunciate it. But literally, if you have a sign that says, do not trespass, <clears throat> what does it mean? If you're a teenager, you know, it means find another way around to get into the same place, right? Uh, but but what, is, what is the purpose of a no trespassing sign? You're going into someone else's property. You're, you're going on to land owned by someone else. And this is the whole idea of the word transgression. Where I literally cross the line. I choose to cross the line on purpose. I find a way to get to that sin that I am not supposed to be even tempted with or wanting to do. And instead, I try to do it in any way possible. In verse 7, it continues on there. And I love this part. How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I had fled or fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. They were like well-fed, lusty stallions. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Oh, this is no longer the G version. This is the Bible describing what it is like in the city of Jerusalem at this time when they themselves should rather be repenting what's happening instead. They're just acting like a bunch of wild animals. Trying to mate with everyone. The, the lusting of each other. As it describes here, this, this stallion who's literally willing to mate with anything that has four legs. The whole idea is you're just acting rather than like people or my people especially. You're acting like a bunch of untrained, illiterate animals that just want to fulfill every single one of their own lusts. And who are they lusting after? It says it there at the end of verse 8. Their neighbor's wives. It, literally, their next door neighbors, the affairs are going on behind everyone's noses and behind everyone's doors. And it's just like a whole bunch of people in heat. And what is God saying? Repent of your ways. And, and this is, you know, the hard part, you know, especially as we walk through this, this can be really hard hitting because you, you understand 
not only, you know, whether it's with the internet or, or pornography or all the things that we have in our society, even billboards, right? Just going to certain places in town where you know there's that, you know, opportunity. Or, or even just at work. The, 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 you know, the flattery that can go on, the, the, the teasing that can happen easily, or the texting, or the sexting, and all the things that are so blatantly in our culture, and it, is it easy even for Christians to fall into that? Oh, yeah. And the hope is, as we're walking through this, that we too would examine our own lives. This isn't just for people that lived some 2,700 years ago. This is applicable today as well. We need to examine our own lives. And thank God we have uh, Jesus Christ to help us through it. We have the Holy Spirit to help us through these things. But we too can have a religious heart that is hard. Faces that are hard. The traditions that we can hold up and say, I know all the words, but my heart is far away. I've backslidden away from the Lord. And of course, the consequences are severe. Verse 9, shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Again, reminding them that just like Sodom and Gomorrah, they were actually even worse. But Jeremiah, again, gives them another chance. Verse 10, go up to her walls and destroy, but do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. How have they done this? Verse 12, they have lied about the Lord and said, it is not he, neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. What are they doing? They're denying it, right? They're denying what's obviously going to happen. We are the chosen people of God. He can't destroy us. He will always protect us. He has to, because he's chosen us. We're better than every other nation on the planet. He's done it before. He's going to do it again. And Jeremiah has to tell the hard words, has to give the hard prophecy that this nation will be destroyed. Despite the fact that there's going to be other priests and prophets that go against it and say, all you have to do is pray this prayer, repent, and then you're going to be saved. No, Jeremiah says, you're going to be gone for 70 years. God's going to save a remnant, yes. But you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. This will happen no matter uh, what. It continues on there in verse 13. As I was saying earlier, and the prophets become wind. For the word is not in them, thus shall it be done to them. Even the religious leaders. Even there, you know, what we would consider the pastors, right? The, the, the priests in, in this time and age, these were the ones that were the people that spoke to the people. The prophets, they were the ones that were supposed to deliver the word of God to the people that they had been told to teach. Just like Jeremiah. 
And Jeremiah understands that if I do not say the truth, then I will have to suffer the consequences of my own words, my own actions. And the prophets that are speaking these, you know, lies, literally, these, you know, tingly words to get the people entertained, to come to the Sabbath, to come to the tabernacle, to come to the temple, to come to the church. And how are they doing it? Everything's going to be okay. But Jeremiah has to tell the truth. And what does he have to say? You're a bunch of sinning, backslidden, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, stone-faced people. You need to repent. You need to turn uh, from your ways. Is it hard to do that, by the way? Yes. But if you love someone, will you take the time to do that? Yes. Jeremiah, he loves his nation very, very much. Verse 14, therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people wood, and it shall devour them. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, a house of Israel, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are mighty men, and they shall eat up your harvest and your bread, which your sons and your daughters should eat. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. They shall destroy your fortified cities in which you trust. Uh, with the sword. Babylon's going to come in and they're going to raise everything to the ground. They're going to destroy it all. They're going to destroy the mighty wall of Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple that King Solomon built, that beautiful house of God. All the land flowing with milk and honey, what will happen to it? It'll be destroyed. And rather than trusting in those walls, trusting in the agriculture, trusting in their heritage, what is God saying? Trust in me. Don't trust in your wealth. Don't trust in those things. Continues on there. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. And it will be when you say, why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Then you shall answer them, just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land. So you shall serve aliens in a land uh, that is not uh, yours. Do you understand what God's saying here? You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be taken away captive, but I'm not going to completely destroy you. There's going to be this remnant. There's going to be a, a saving of the people of Israel as a minority. And I will save you for my name's sake. Not because of, you know, you deserve it. Not because these people are somehow more righteous than anyone else. No. It's because of my grace to the people of Israel. You see, over and over and over again throughout history, uh, the nation of Israel has been on the brink of extermination. Just in, even in recent history, right? Just, just within the last hundred years. 
And what has God done over and over and over again for the people of Israel? He's always saved a remnant. Despite the fact that their enemies are always greater than them, God saves a remnant. And he makes this promise again, but because they have put other gods in front of God, what is he saying? I'm going to put you in captivity for a certain period of time, for 70 years. And just like you served those gods, you're going to be serving foreign people. You're going to be serving people that you don't even understand their language. And you're going to be taken away captive. And God is going to work on your hearts in that time of discipline, that, that, that time of trial, uh, that, that tr time of contemplation, where you will then long for the temple that was destroyed. Well, you were long for those times where you could actually have communion with God, the real service, the, the real worship. Not just the, you know, the, you know, the, the play. Not just the facade. Not just the religious services. You see, when you see someone on fire for Jesus Christ, when you see someone on fire for God, what does that do to your own um, walk? Hopefully what it does is it encourages you. Am I on fire like that person? Do I, do I have that same zeal? Do I have that same love, that deep, deep, real love? Because when a facade is put next to something that's real, the facade's going to fall over every single time. The, fa the facade is just that paper that's easily torn, where the real thing always stands up. The real relationship uh, with God. Verse 20, it continues on. And again, speaking to Jeremiah in these paragraph uh, sections of sermons, it says, declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah saying, hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding who have eyes and see not and who have ears and hear not. Oh, a great way to start a sermon. <clears throat> Is this very seeker friendly? It, does this will this draw a crowd? Is this very entertaining where you actually have to come up against people and say, um, you're a bunch of fools? Similar to the book of you know Proverbs, by the way, that uses that same word on purpose. And how does he describe these people that are living in Jerusalem at this time? You're just a bunch of foolish people without understanding. You're blind and you're deaf. You have no clue about what's going on. You're spiritually blind. You're just living uh, the life of a facade. Fake. What do they say? Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence? Have you placed the sand as the bond of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it? And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. <clears throat> but this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They are revolted and departed. <coughs> 
excuse me, in the book of Romans, which Pastor Mike <clears throat> in the book of Romans, uh, which Pastor Mike has been going through on Sundays. In chapter one, we see a creation itself. What does creation do? It speaks to the glory of God. It speaks to not only who he is in creation itself. You just look out at creation and you can see uh, God and his handiwork. And, and this description here of the boundary of every single one of the oceans. And, and you just, just imagine this, how God designed every single one of the bodies of water that we have. And how he has set up that boundary on purpose. And the wind and the seas obey him. But who does not? People. Right? Creation obeys God. But who doesn't? The people of God. The chosen people of God have this defiant, rebellious heart. And they've turned from the God who chose them and created them. And by the way, of course, he gave them a choice too. Creation doesn't have a choice to obey, but we do as the people. And by the way, as we see, as we walk through, keep this in mind, they have this conversation with their heart. Who is purposely choosing to walk away from God? And how are they being led astray by their own hearts, their own wills, their own uh, choices? You see it here in verse 23, but this people has a defiant and a rebellious heart. They have revolted and they've departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God after all the consequences of their sin. They're not saying, let's turn back to God. Instead, what do they say in, uh, beside that? They said, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives us rain, both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. You see, the people of Israel and God himself had this contract. If the people of Israel obeyed God, they were blessed. If they didn't obey God, they were cursed. It's a very black and white uh, agreement. Now, this, of course, wasn't the, you know, the, the, the full covenant of God. God would always see them as his people. But how he responded to them depended upon their actions, whether they obeyed or they didn't obey. And so in verse 26 there, as it says, For among my people are found wicked men who lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap, they catch men, as a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and grown uh, rich. What have they cultivated in their society? Deceit and lies. Just as if you were to raise or have pets or birds in a cage. They've gone out and they've studied the ways to deceive and lie to people. But by the way, you know, who was the, you know, the originator of the nation of Israel? Wh whose name was changed from his given name to the name Israel? Jacob. You guys all know this. 
And literally, that name means heel grabber. Or, as any of you that have ever read the story of Jacob, he was known as a deceiver. The very first person that recorded in the Bible that he receives is his own twin brother. Uh, just for a, a bowl of lentils, a red beans, and a, a piece of bread, he deceives his brother. And then who else does he deceive? His own dad, right? Right before he has to leave and go and to his future father-in-law, Laban, who, by the way, deceives him. Every part of his life is about deceit and lies. And it permeated the nation of Israel as a whole. And they were known for being able to get the upper hand in a, you know, a business deal. They, they were, they're known for being able to you know, get the upper hand in terms of any sort of an agreement. Why? It all goes back to the very beginning. And yet God, in his infinite mercy and grace, who does he choose out of all the peoples on the planet? All the nations on the planet. He chooses Israel, knowing full well that they are a bunch of deceivers and liars. And God still chooses them. And God's still faithful to them. And God still speaks the truth to them, no matter how many times they turn their back on him. And guess what he does for us, too? Exactly the same. Does God love us when we lie and deceive? Yes, he does. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, whom, by the way, we're going to be celebrating in a, about a week and a half coming up and the privilege of knowing that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like the Israelites and like you and me. He came to this world for us. Verse 28 there, it says, They have grown fat, they are sleek, yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause and the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper in the right of the needy they do not defend. All those people that are left in the city, all the riffraff, all the rejects from Babylon itself, what are they doing? Taking advantage of them. Instead of standing up for the poor, what are they doing instead? They're deceiving them, lying to them, taking advantage of them, using them as stepping stones for their own political gain. And as we learned last week, even worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, in 29 there, it describes it very perfectly. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? An astonishing and a horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? Everybody's in on it. From the top of the religious caste all the way down to the people in the pews. Everybody knows it. Everybody sees it. And no one is standing up to it. And unfortunately, it happens today as well. Is it easy to go along with the crowd? 
Is it easy to go to the biggest church in town? I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not saying that the biggest church in town is, is bad. There's a lot of good churches. Thank God for Bakersfield. We have lots and lots of good godly churches. Thank God. And godly pastors as well. But the understanding is, are we searching the scriptures, looking to make sure that we're going to a church that is like that? And thank God we have pastors that stand up for the truth. Uh, thank God we have pastors, shepherds that are willing to not only give of themselves for uh, the church, but elders as well. Uh, that are willing and able and longing to see this church grow and serve God, to serve the needy. And by the way, just that plug, you know, if you weren't here for at the very beginning, you know, with Together We Can on Friday and Sunday for those that are in uh, need. Uh, it uh, is an important time in the the week of our church or in the month of our, our church. And there are people have been working uh, so hard behind the scenes to make sure that that happens. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, and you'll see it up on the screens there. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they, they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, speaking to us, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Just this last Monday, we started a study on the spiritual gifts for the men. And just helping us as, as men of the church to be able to not only know our spiritual gift, but then to use it for the church. Because every single one of the spiritual gifts are, are meant to build up the church. They're, they're meant to grow the church as a whole. And so if you, you are a man, of course, you're more than invited uh, to come to that. We're going to be uh, especially doing that in the, the month of January after our, our Christmas dinner. Just a plug, by the way, for the men's ministry. And, and thank you, guys, the, those of you that do come. It, it's really uh, good to see you multiple times a week. Chapter 6 there, it continues on. Oh, you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and set up a signal fire in Beth Hasarem. Uh, for disaster appears out of the north and great uh, destruction. Remember earlier at the very beginning, we talked about these two tribes. Uh, these are the two major tribes that are left. The, the tribe of Judah. Uh, from which David was descended, and then you have the tribe of Benjamin, the youngest of the tribes. And the reason why these two tribes are together is because they had made an alliance with one another. And this alliance had gone all the way back to David and his best friend, Jonathan. You see, Jonathan's dad, you guys remember this, was the first king of Israel, Saul, right? And just like the Saul in the New Testament, who later became Paul, they both came from the same exact tribe, the youngest of the tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. And this tribe of Benjamin was, of course, the, the favorite of their dad, Israel. Uh, they, they were the youngest of the tribes. They, you know, were the, the one that, you know, when Joseph had been taken away into uh, bondage in, in Egypt and his dad thought that he was dead, 
he said, you know, when his brothers tried to come back and take him and, and, and say, we just need to take Benjamin. We'll take care of him and we'll protect him. All we have to do is take him to Egypt, show him to this guy, and we'll bring him right back. And what did Israel say, Jacob? What did he say? You're not going to take my favorite son, my youngest son. I had already lost my son, Joseph. I'm not going to let you take Benjamin. And so this Benjamin, as we see here, is now the next tribe that's going to be talking to. The, the warning that comes to Benjamin. And by the way, you know, who was supposed to inherit the next king after Saul? It wasn't David. It was supposed to be Jonathan, right? And what does Jonathan do? He literally gives up his throne for his friend David. This godly man who literally had won battles before, who, unlike his dad, was actually a man who followed after God. If you just read the, the story, even Benjamin is mentioned, I mean, excuse me, Jonathan is mentioned before David in the Bible. And yet God chooses David and Jonathan supports him with all of his heart. And they make this pact and say, your children and my, my children, uh, they will have an alliance. They will make this covenant with one another, Judah and Benjamin the two tribes. And so the southern kingdom is made up of these two tribes, the majority, of course, there's, there's still uh, the other tribes there, they're just not as, as major, but in terms of the definition of the actual territories, Judah and Benjamin are in the south, the tribe of Judah. And now he addresses Benjamin, and it says there in verse two, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. The shepherds with their flocks shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents against her all around. Each one shall pasture in his own place. Why does God always use a description for the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, or even the church in terms of a female form or a feminine aspect? Why does he do that? You know why? Women are prettier, right? Definitely, right? Every single time that we're going to see it here, I mean, she's this beautiful lady. But what has happened to her? You read Ezekiel 16, you read Ezekiel 32, you see the way that they start out. They start out as these beautiful women, and then what happens to them? Again, not using G language, they become prostitutes. They become whores, as the Bible says. They fall away. Verse 4, prepare war against her, arise, let us go up at noon. Woe to us, for the day goes away. For the shadows of the evening are lengthening, arise, let us go by night, let us destroy her palaces. For thus says the Lord of hosts, cut down trees and build a mound against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst as a fountain wells up. With water, so she wells up with her wickedness. Violence and plundering are heard in her there before me continually. Our grief and wounds. What is God doing? 
He's showing the nation of Babylon where to put the mounds, the siege works, the ability to bring down the walls of Jerusalem. God's pointing it out. He's saying, do it right here. He's bringing the nation that's going to discipline Israel. He's bringing the nation that's going to discipline Jerusalem. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall surely glean as a vine the remnant of Israel as a grape gatherer putting their hand back into the branches. And you see this picture. Whether it's in the book of Ruth, we like to talk about gleaning, but we always think of it in a good sense. What is God going to do? He's going to glean the nation of Judah. He's going to glean the nation of Benjamin. And he's going to take them away into Babylon for 70 years. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ears uncircumcised, they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of the young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who is full of days. It doesn't matter your status. It doesn't matter your age. And God is coming. It, it's hard to talk about the wrath of God or the anger of God. Especially when up here, you know, and you know what it does to the people that are listening. And how it makes you uncomfortable. Or, or as a good Baptist pre preacher would say, you know, puts a fire underneath your seat, right? Your rear end. But, it, but it's a hard thing because the reason why this is being taught is as we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible, we can't skip ahead. Because it builds to the next sections on purpose. It builds to the reason why God is coming. To discipline his people that he loves so dearly because he doesn't want to leave them in their sin. He doesn't want to leave them there. Because he knows that if he takes them out of this situation, they will have to examine themselves. They will have to look at their lives and say, why were we put into slavery, into bondage? And then they will miss their time with God and they will hopefully come back with hearts that are full of love for God. Or as it says in verse uh, 11 in it, therefore I am full of the fury of the Lord. I'm weary of holding it in. Even Jeremiah himself, this message is hard to give. It's extremely difficult. He wants to preach the good things. He wants to preach the love of God. He wants to preach these things that, you know, uh, will draw the crowds. But what does he know he has to do? Just like love does. It has to be truthful. It has to speak the truth. And their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and their wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. 
from the prophet, even to the priest. Everyone deals uh, falsely. We've seen this uh, earlier in the, the previous verses. They are just a, a bunch of lying, greedy people. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time I punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. And just like what we learned last week, they had forgotten how to blush. Why? Because it had become ingrained in them. It had become a part of their life. So much so that sin no longer caused them to blush. They actually bragged about it. Is that rampant in our society as well? Oh, yes. And by the way, you can listen to last week's uh, uh, service and I go into more detail on, on that. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Oh, they're just a bunch of old fogies. They're just a bunch of religious nuts. That's what my grandma and grandpa used to do, right? That, that, that was for the old people a long time ago. We're more reformed. We're more, you know, societal. We're more modern, right? The mantra of our age as well. Also, I will set watchmen over you, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore, hear you nations and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it. And of course, this has been going on for centuries after centuries after centuries. Jeremiah is not the first of the prophets. Jeremiah is not the first of the people to warn. He's just the last. And he has to bring the word of destruction against his own people. Verse 20, for what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. And this again goes back to the tribe of Benjamin. You see, and I'm just going to uh, skip ahead here. Uh, in fact, just uh, go, go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's in the chapter 7 part. We're just going to put that up there just this one time, just to kind of uh, summarize this. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 to 23, uh, again, the first king of Israel, Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin, the one that we saw at the beginning of this chapter, says this, and Samuel has to come up against the one that he anointed, by the way. And after King Saul has made this amazing victory, he takes the spoils, and instead of killing and sacrificing the best, instead of killing the king that he was supposed to, Samuel says this in verse 22. It says, so Samuel said, as the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed 
than the fat of rams. You can't buy your way out of this. And listen to verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft or devil worship. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And from that time forward, God no longer sees Saul as king. And Samuel then leaves this place and he goes and he anoints the next king, King David. From the tribe of Judah, by the way. And it all goes back to this understanding and every single Israelite who knows anything about the history of Israel would recognize these verses. You're just like the first king. Instead of obeying me, you're disobeying me and literally worshiping Satan himself in your disobedience. You're literally turning your back uh, on me. We'll just finish up this chapter here. Now, um, by the way, these scents that are here, we, we see these at Christmas time too, by the way. Where does frankincense come from? It says it right there. Yeah, there in verse 20, from Sheba, right? You know, the, the queen of Sheba that came and saw uh, Solomon's temple and the land and all of its beauty and glory. The, the same spice, by the way, that's part of the three spices that are given to the baby Jesus. Frankincense, myrrh, right? And gold. And the, this understanding, this, this valuable spice that's coming from Sheba, it is like perfume, but what does it do to sin? It doesn't cover it up. It just makes it stink worse. It makes it smell worse. Verse 21, and we'll, we'll end it here at this chapter. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will lay stumbling blocks before this people. And the fathers and the sons together shall fall on them. And the neighbor and his friend shall perish. Thus says the Lord, <clears throat> behold, a people comes from the north country and a great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth. They will lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and they have no mercy. Their voices roars like the sea and they ride on horses and as men of war set in array against you, O daughter of Zion, who's raising them up? Who's the one that's raising them up? Who's putting the stumbling blocks out? It's God. We have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain is of a woman in labor. Do not go out into the field nor walk by the way because of the sword of the enemy. Fear is on every side. O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth, roll about in ashes, make mourning as for one or for an only son, make bitter lamentation. The definition of who Jeremiah was, the weeping prophet, for the plunderer will suddenly come upon us. I have set you as an assayer, speaking to Jeremiah, in a fortress among my people, that they, you may know and test their way. They are all stubborn rebels, walking as slanderers. They are bronze and iron. They are all corruptors. The bellows blow furiously, and lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain, for the wicked are not drawn off. 
people will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. And you, you've heard how silver is refined. You've been in this church for any length of time. Pastor Mike always describes it as this dross that is taken off the silver and over and over and over again. And what was the qualification for the purity of that silver? It had to reflect the crafter in it. And it had to reflect the blacksmith. It had to reflect the person who was refining that silver. And what has happened to Israel? Are they reflecting their Savior? Are they reflecting the one that chose them? Are they reflecting the God of the universe? No. That they're just a bunch of, you know, uh, corrupted silver. Silver that is full of all those impurities that literally looks ugly and yucky. It's not silver. It's just a mix of all these impurities that are in this literally conglomerate of, of spikes that are coming out of it. It's just raw and it no longer reflects the God who chose them, made them, and loves them. And God is saying, I'm going to reject you. Just like that silver that can no longer be refined. And by the way, read ahead chapters uh, 7, 8, and 9 for uh, next week. Probably next week, though, we'll, we'll be doing a, a topical study because of, of Christmas. Uh, but, but read ahead to the next couple of chapters as we, we, we move ahead. And, and just ask the Lord, you know, it, it's easy, you know, in terms of, you know, just reading through this and not actually pondering these things. But ask the Lord when you read through this, what is my heart like? What, what does my real heart look like? Do I reflect my Savior? Or is it just a facade? Do, do I just come on the Sundays or the Mondays or the Wednesdays or the Fridays or throughout the week and, and just do the religious things? Or do I have a heart that reflects the Savior that loves me, who died for me? Do I actually want to be like Jesus? And my prayer, and I know for you as well, and I thank you guys for being here on a Wednesday night, is that you would be the same. And so, Father, as we approach your throne room again, I ask that you would help us to examine ourselves. And, you know, not to compare ourselves with other people, but to compare ourselves with your word and to know that that refining process, it is hard and as Jeremiah had to preach the truth to a rebellious people that had backslidden, that were stiff-necked, hard-faced, hard-hearted, it's hard to read these words and see uh, myself reflected in them at times. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us to examine our lives, examine us. Help us to see you and thank God that you have sent your son as we celebrate this time of year uh, to come as that little babe in a manger, Emmanuel, God with us, and to know that that same baby grows up and, and dies for our sins so that we can experience grace and mercy, freedom in you. And so Lord, help us to evaluate, help us to look. Help us to see these uh, very descriptive uh, terms in this chapter here and help us to really understand it. 
and maybe even to share it with someone else that we know. This is what I, I learned, and, and I want to share this with you. So, Lord, I ask that you bless these, my friends, my family here tonight, those that are watching online. That you'd use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.